The project that I'm going to talk about today exists at this sort of awkward nexus, I think, between uh, between political theory uh, and post-structural theory in, in particular, uh, and the field of public policy uh, and urban policy in particular. Uh, and so on the one hand, we're going to move from this sort of deep dive into ontologies of data, into the way we think about data and the assumptions we make about data's place in the world, uh, to a more applied context uh, in Sidewalk Toronto, which I know a lot of us are, are already uh, familiar with. Uh, <laughs> in that in that vein as well, there's this sort of awkward character to the project where it can feel maybe a little bit like an apology for sidewalk labs uh, <laughs> or a defense of, of what happened and, and what was proposed. And I, I don't think that that's the case. Uh, and I definitely don't feel that way, uh, but I'm happy to explore that a little bit more in the chat afterwards. Just to do a little bit of an overview here, like I said, we're gonna start by jumping into sort of the ontologies of data. And in particular, we're gonna look at the way in which that shapes our understanding of individuals within the city and our understanding of urban experience. And I'm gonna suggest that there are handfuls, a handful of limitations to this model. Uh, and in particular, I'm gonna suggest uh, that the emphasis on sort of individuality and atomization both of data itself and of datafied individuals ignores and uh, levels the sort of temporal diversity of the city and of the experiences that we bring to bear in datafied infrastructures. At the end, I'm going to sort of propose an alternative understanding rooted in uh, Derrida's idea of spectrality. And then I'm going to actually suggest that elements of this, or at least parts of this, could be identified uh, in an applied context uh, in Sidewalk's pioneering use of the, the term urban data. So that's the journey. <laughs> uh, and hopefully we can kind of uh, keep some pace to it. I think uh, like most of us, uh, as most of us are already aware, uh, data is becoming an increasingly privileged ingredient in municipal governance. So Natasha Tusikov, for instance, uh, calls data the lifeblood of the future city. David Chandler also describes this transition underway from database decision-making, which certainly existed prior to the rise of digital technologies, to data-driven governance, where cities are now implicated in the exploratory data collection of tech developers who build predictive and correlational models following the advent of machine learning. Basically saying, we're gonna collect the data and then see what it reveals to us, rather than bringing uh, preconceived hypotheses to bear on urban space. As data becomes a topic of focus in local politics, it's pretty common, I think, to, to hear it referred to as the new oil, or at the very least uh, called the, the digital exhaust of the city. On the one hand, this metaphor reflects the perceived value of data itself. So like the fuel of the automobile-centered city, data are now seen as the bedrock of the next great evolution in city building, the so-called digital revolution. On the other hand, these discourses naturalize data as an already existing resource to be captured and refined. As Kitchen says, data are generally considered to be pre-factual and pre-analytical in nature, that which exists prior to argument or interpretation. Basically, datafication is treated as the gradual discovery of an existing present city, with emphasis then placed on improving the process through data wrangling and the elimination of static and noise through tuned instruments and data cleaning. 
The result is this gradual depoliticization of data and especially uh, what's commonly called real-time data or data seem to be collected, seemingly collected instantaneously. Data-driven governance promises a more objective, efficient alternative to the traditional levers of governmentality, allowing the authentic city to reveal itself within the real time. This kitchen says again, there is a belief that in the age of machine learning and big data, data can speak for themselves. Now, if this has influenced our relationship to data and the technologies that we pursue, it's also influenced the way that we think about individuals within the city and the relationship we imagine between cities and urban subjects. Increasingly, individuals within the city are understood and treated according to their position within available data sets. So Kitchen describes this, again, we're going to Kitchen, <laughs> but Kitchen describes this in terms of a move towards the quantified self, whereby our positionality within the city is determined through measurement and record. A few weeks ago here at the Center for Ethics, Wendy Wong also described this as a transition from physical you to quote data you, and the growing importance of data profiles in determining who goes where and who gets what within the city. The result is an urban subject increasingly understood according to their biometrics including both their location and the speed with which they navigate urban space. As Shoshana Zuboff says, and I quote here, your body is reimagined as a behaving object to be tracked and calculated for indexing and search. Though a slight tangent, we can trace similarities between this emphasis on what Zuboff calls mere life and uh, Agamemnon's biopolitical work on the measurement and disciplining of what he calls bare life. Returning to Zuboff, quote, the future collapses into an infinite present of mere behavior in which there can be no subjects and no projects, only object. For private companies, the identification of the subject promises improved predictability and the power to nudge human behavior in more desired marketable directions. And so we see a connection between naturalized discourses and the, and the expansion of surveillance capitalism. For governments, the promises of increasingly responsive and efficient service delivery as new data streams allow governments to fine tune their resources to ever finer degrees. And finally, for residents, datafication enables new forms of personalization and choice as individual residents exchange personal details for a more tailored experience of the city and all that it offers. This includes the rise of what Kitchen calls surveillance, the personal monitoring and management of one's own life through self-generated data. And Kitchen uses the example of uh, fitness tracking. Uh, and people who uh, sort of juke their stats by shaking the Apple Watch on their wrist. This move allows us to reflect on ourselves, to externalize ourselves, and to improve. In short, the datification of the subject promises a more reflective and reflexive city. And again, in this move, we see a push towards acceleration and the realization of the real time, which allows this recursive loop to unfold within the shelter of what Delange calls the perpetual present. In short, we could say that contemporary data discourses revolve, a rather, revolve around a rather dualistic understanding of the urban human subject. On the one hand, residents are reduced to their presence within data, the objectification of the so-called human animal. On the other hand, datafication brings this rendered image before the gaze of a transcendental decision maker, whether human or otherwise. Data is viewed from above, within the increasingly depoliticized shelter of apparent real-timeness. This data discourse privileges some technologies, some knowledges, some behaviors, and some bodies over others. In this case, 
Data discourses tended to privilege a relatively affluent urban consumer, negotiating city services according to an accelerating efficiency mediated by facilitatory infrastructures. Conversely, these discourses discriminate against those individuals and those technologies associated with a slower, more analog past, as well as those bodies whose uh, decisions and spaces do not conform to the expectations or assumptions baked into this expanding technocracy. As Zuboff says, and here I'm gonna quote her at length, she says, a pathological division of learning forged by unprecedented asymmetries of knowledge and power fixes us in a new inequality marked by the tuners and the tuned, the herders and herded, the raw material and its miners, the experimenters and their unwinning subjects, those who willed the future and those who are shunted towards others guaranteed outcomes. As this expansion becomes increasingly problematized, of course, there are calls to regulate. What I wanna suggest, however, is that rather than rejecting this dualistic tension between uh, human animal and uh, human decision maker, human subject, transcendental subject, Rather than rejecting this tension, existing regulations have actually tended to accommodate and reinforce it. Contemporary work on data rights, for instance, reinstates the connection between mind and body by arguing that personal information, and again, we have this privilege of the personal, remains the property of the atomized individual, emphasizing the connection between data exhaust and the autonomous human engine. The notion of privacy likewise builds on this connection uh, by arguing that datafication is a matter of choice and consent. Datafication is transactional and a participatory contract between individual technologies and their creators and the transcendental conscience of the consumer. Contemporary regulatory frameworks thus have a leveling effect among urban subjects, removing decisions about data from the complexity and contingency of urban space. Instead, decisions about data are treated like the decisions we make based on data, and relegated to the transcendental, taking place within the instantaneous or rather atemporal shelter of a shared and pre-technological real time. To that end, critical data discourses have maintained the idea that there is a shared authentic urbanity prior to engagement with specific or individual technologies, one that should be protected from the encroaching reach of the private sector. And I would argue that we can see this consumerist model in legal, leading regulations like the GDPR or the California Consumer Act. But Canada is no exception. Whether it's Pepita or the Digital Charter, there is this emphasis on personal information and individuals' right to decide about what data they provide. And of course, this is important. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more later, but I'm not saying that, that privacy uh, needs to be abandoned wholesale. However, I would argue that there are significant limitations to this predominant or to this hegemonic emphasis on privacy. As if the hierarchization of urban life was not cause enough for concern, there are also more pragmatic limitations to the emphasis on atomization and transaction. The first is that consent-based privacy models are increasingly impractical given the growing ubiquity of surveillance technology. And this is especially true when one considers the push to invisibilize the technologies themselves making them an increasingly seamless part of the way that we move and interface throughout the city. Second, I would suggest that the right to decide about privacy is not equally available or equally necessary. In other words, datafication does not take place in a vacuum or a temporal shelter. Socioeconomic pressures make it difficult for many to disconnect from the datafying process, such as those who rely on particular technologies for work or transportation. 
In this view, disconnection is itself becoming a luxury that many cannot afford. In the same vein, the stakes of privacy are not equally distributed throughout the city. Those who feel that they have nothing to hide are often those that are most secure within existing social hierarchies. Others worry, by contrast, about the way in which data about them may be mobilized, not just uh, today, but in the future, as the uh, political winds change. And of course, this is to say nothing of the socio-political and material histories that are often baked into data themselves, which shape the categories and capacities available and by which the city is understood. Current discourses level, level this heterogeneity through their emphasis on a shared real time that assumes the arena of the urban moment, the present city within which datafication unfolds to be universal, static, and apolitical. I can think, uh, I can draw a connection here uh, as well to Adorno and Horkheimer's idea that bourgeois society is ruled by equivalence. It makes the dissimilar comparable by reducing it to abstract quantities. This not only shapes our understanding of data and urban subjects, but in fact, our understanding, our understanding of the city itself. Iona Data, for instance, has noted that data discourses have tended to sanitize urban phenomena through their homogenizing emphasis on this objective real-time city, ignoring the temporal complexity across which the city unfolds. And she looks at this in the context of uh, gender-based violence in Indian cities and the suggestion that, that datafication has tended to treat things as uh, singular points on a datafied map. Even in cases, and this is the third point, even in cases where abstention from datafication is possible and available, protection from datafication is no longer so simple. As data becomes the legitimized barometer of what is within the city, contemporary regulatory frameworks are ill-equipped to address the risks associated with erasure and exclusion. For starters, abstention or exclusion is not immunization against data-based decision-making. And in fact, exclusion from the data often serves to reinforce social biases, such as, uh, and this is a relatively common example, the problematic outputs of facial recognition algorithms that are trained on predominantly white faces. We can think as well of Canada's ongoing data deficit and the extent to which this deficit has left researchers ill-equipped to understand or potentially address networks of inequality and discrimination within the country. Even more terrifyingly, the volume of data collected now means that even those who do abstain from a particular data set are no longer protected from advancements in re-identification techniques. Silhouettes formed by conspicuous absences are now enough for companies, governments, or the people around us to infer telling details about our lives. And so this is the problem. This is the problem of, of uh, that I'm trying to address within this project, and it leaves us with this question. How do we grapple with both the complexity of city rhythms and a data landscape in which the divine between presence and absence is not simple? To answer this question, I wanna to go to a somewhat unexpected place maybe, uh, which is that I believe Jacques Derrida's work on the subject, uh, Deconstruction's work, uh, provides valuable insight into our, understand our, our understanding, rather, of the datafication process. Unlike current data discourses, which imagine a relatively firm divide between the material and the transcendental urban subject, Derrida presents us with a more immunitized and emergent understanding of subjectivity. More specifically, Derrida argues that subjectivities emerge from within the referential play of significatory systems, which create meaning through repetitive and communicable delineations traced over and through a pre-phenomenological materiality. We can think colloquially, for those of us 
that are less familiar with Derrida's work about how we might define a cat, for instance, and the endless string of definitions in which we would be implicated by the simple task. Derrida's most illustrative work in this regard is the institutive division between self and other. The self, he argues, is instituted through a preliminary designation of and spacing from another whose non-presence serves to contrast and give shape to the presence of the subject. The self in this way is not self-sufficient or atomic. Instead, it's codependent and vulnerable, constituted artificially, which is to say technologically, within a web of signs that only take on meaning through their relation to other signs ad infinitum. This means that experience of the self and of the other is only ever indirect, refracted through inherited systems, inherited discursive systems that operate without any constant or reliable center, without any essence at their middle. The result, Derrida argues, is an awkward play between presence and absence, whereby the very presence of the subject remains withdrawn behind the artificial traces that make subjective experience discernible in the first place. Implicated in these technical processes, the self is incomplete and unstable. Its presence is dependent on and haunted by the persistence of the non-present. And this is where Derrida says, uh, we are all ghosts, particularly to one another. This includes importantly, the non-presence of past and future, which shape and threaten the discursive contexts, contexts in which the individual subject unfolds. Put another way, we could say that the subject uh, is technological, iterative and contested, unfolding within contingent significatory systems that are themselves inheritors of complex socio-political and material history. On the one hand then, Derrida's work points us towards the contingency and artificiality of data and data infrastructures. Like all significatory systems, data infrastructures are localized and political, historically informed and shaped by existing technical and material constraints. In a word, data is haunted. To that end, Derrida points us to a more temporalized understanding of data itself and the complex intersections of past, present, and future that determine contemporary infrastructures. At the same time, framing data in the language of science highlights the degree to which they are repeatable, survivable, and as Derrida says, biodegradable. Data outlive the cities and residents that they aim to represent turned over in future, to be turned over in future infrastructural context. It's unclear what decisions these data may engender or what problems they may create, but contemporary policies exist always already in the shadow of this unpredictability. As opposed to a rather static and sheltered framing of data decisions, then Derrida's work replaces instantaneity and real-timeness with a framing of datification as dynamic, incomplete, and transtemporal a process to be visited and revisited over and over like a persistent ghost. To that end, Derrida's work also highlights a more emergent uh, urban subjectivity. Individuals do not enter or negotiate with these transtemporal infrastructures from a pre-technological self-sufficient or transcendental positionality. Instead, they emerge from within these significatory networks, including data infrastructures that produce meaning and order through relational assemblage. Accordingly, contemporary discussions uh, of privacy are not so much about withholding information, but about withdrawing from a technicity that affords this opportunity to some, but not others. These inequalities, of course, are historically informed and diverse, 
producing emergent rhythms that likewise stand in contrast to any solitary or sequestered idealization of the real time. Deconstruction, in other words, pluralizes urban rhythms, replacing the singular emphasis on speed and real timeness with divergent and haunted presence in the plural. We can connect this pluralizing movement to Sarah Sharma's work on urban temporalities and what she calls the chronopolitics that overshadow that are overshadowed by the depoliticizing language of acceleration and instantaneity. Like all significatory systems, these data infrastructures are relational, producing meaning through categorizations that only take shape through reference, contrast, and spacing. Though this carries a valuable lesson for the way we ontologize data themselves, uh, and the way we think about data categories, it also provides a lens through which we might uh, come to understand erasure and marginalization as an active force within datafication processes. As Derrida says, absence isn't secondary or contrary to the appearance of the signified present, but in fact integral to the shape and form of the present sign. Presence is haunted necessarily by absence, not as its opposite, but as its compatriot. Absence remains an active force. Uh, in this way, in the determination of specific digital texts and the meaning they create, with implications both for those included and excluded from a particular data set. This includes those whose silhouettes are now conspicuous enough to render them vulnerable to re-identification. Again, this isn't to say that privacy is a completely useless, uh, uh, is completely useless as a regulatory concept. Derrida has written extensively on the notion of secrecy and the isolation or the feeling of isolation that comes from recognizing the alienating and discursive refractions through which we understand ourselves. However, it does suggest that notions of privacy must be supplemented with something more nuanced and sensitive to the rhythmic hauntings of urban subjects and data infrastructures. In this, Derrida's work provides a useful starting point from which we might engage and problematize contemporary discussions of individual privacy as a regulatory ideal. And so the question for the rest of the, uh, for the, rest of the talk today is what does this look like in practice? And to answer this question, I wanna, again, bring us back to, a, to an example that I think most of us in the GTR are familiar with, which is uh, Sidewalk Toronto. So just to set the stage for those of you unfamiliar, so Sidewalk Labs appeared in Toronto in 2017. And at the time they found a city eager to revive its aging uh, and largely abandoned waterfront. Now at the time Sidewalk, sidewalk uh, differentiated themselves or what set Sidewalk apart was their promise to build the world's first neighborhood uh, from the internet up or the world's first neighborhood built from the internet up with data constituting a key ingredient uh, to their proposed Keyside development. At the same time, and this is sort of where uh, company and government got into hot water, Sidewalk found itself operating within a perceived regulatory vacuum within the city and indeed within uh, the province and within the country. Waterfront Toronto, the tri-governmental agency in charge of the city's waterfront, charged Sidewalk with formulating not just a developmental vision, but also a regulatory framework uh, able to accommodate the proliferation in sensory-based and data-generating infrastructures that were so fundamental uh, to their vision. It's in response to this tension uh, that Sidewalk first proposed the term urban data. The idea that, or the concept first appears in the in appendix to their initial pros, um, proposal just once, but by the time they reached uh, their MIDP, their Master Innovation Development Plan, 
uh, two years later, the term appeared over 37 times. Throughout, urban data is framed or was framed as supplemental to an existing regulatory framework deemed incapable of protecting Torontonians from the surveillance and data collection necessary to operate digital infrastructures. And again, this was wrapped up within the sort of progressivism and idealism that suggested these innovations, these technologies uh, were uh, an unavoidable part of the city of the future. And so the decision was not whether or not to pursue technologies, but how to grapple with the implications they may have uh, on individual privacy. And just to set the stage, uh, I think I can't necessarily define urban data as well as they did. Uh, so we'll start just with two sort of quotes here. They said, on the one hand, existing privacy laws apply only to or uh, only to protect personal information, meaning information about an identifiable individual. Sidewalk Labs heard through its consultations that Torontonians are also concerned about the collection and use of data gathered in the city's public realm. For all of these reasons, Sidewalk Labs proposes a new category of data called urban data that includes both personal information and information that is not connected to a particular individual. The term urban data nods to the fact that it is collected in a physical space in the city and may be associated with practical challenges in obtaining meaningful consent. Urban data therefore seems worthy of additional protections. A little bit later in the same document, they write urban data would be broader than the definition of personal information and include personal, non-personal, aggregate, or de-identified data collected and used in physical or community spaces where meaningful consent prior to collection and use is hard, if not impossible to obtain. In that sense, urban data would be distinct from more traditional forms of data, termed here transaction data, in which individuals affirmatively, albeit with varying levels of understanding, provide information about themselves through websites, mobile phones, or paper documents. To manage this data and the process of its generation, Sidewalk then proposed this idea of an urban data trust. At the time, however, the notion of urban data became a key point of contention within the city uh, and a defining sort of uh, linchpin uh, in Sidewalk's future in Toronto. Critics argued that the urban data, uh, that the idea of urban data merely served to work around existing regulations and further legitimate extensive datafication happening elsewhere within, uh, within Keyside, which was the neighborhood that they were working in. And I don't wanna suggest in any way that that's not true. I think uh, I agree with that criticism. However, I do think that there's a potentiality within uh, urban data, within the idea of urban data. And in particular, in the way it's contrasted with um, with uh, contemporary privacy discourses and the focus on personal information that can help us uh, address some of the limitations of existing models, whether we choose to continue calling that urban data or not. So what is its value? On the one hand, I think that the idea of urban data and its positioning in relation uh, to, to this predominant emphasis on privacy provides useful insight into how we might approach an urban space that is uh, technological all the way down. Positioning urban data not as an individual or transactional choice, but as a participatory collective that one engages in simply by virtue of their own publicity. In viewing data this way, or in positioning some data this way, Sidewalk Lab shifts focus from individualistic consent to communal decision making and what's called elsewhere, predominantly in environmental literature, procedural justice. Uh, second, uh, the idea of urban data recognizes datafication as heterogeneous and unequal, 
with a particular focus given, at least in principle, and again, at least in principle, uh, to those traditionally excluded or ill-equipped to navigate discussions about data governance. The idea of a data trust is an active attempt to grapple with uh, and rectify ongoing erasures within the datafication process, not just within data sets, but within decision-making uh, uh, arenas. Third, and I think that this is uh, the real uh, key here, the real building block here, is that I think the idea of urban data emphasizes the relational nature of data within the city, not just as something that exists in public space, but as a discursive force that makes sense of the urban community at the same time that it's determined within the same context. In this, value is moved from its traditional focus or traditional locus in, in the atomized individual uh, for the sake of personalization and choice to the collective and the generative turning over of data within these unfolding relationalities. So Sidewalk says, take the example of traffic data. Since that data originates on public streets paid for by taxpayers, and since the use of that data could have an impact on how those streets operate in the future, the data should become a public resource. To that end, notions of data, uh, urban data seem to shift the focus from what types of uh, data we pursue. At the same time, uh, and I think maybe this is where the apology of of urban data ends, I would suggest that Derrida's deconstructive work helps us to push the promise of urban data further, both in our understanding of the transtemporal nature of these data infrastructures and in the theorization of absence and erasure as an active determinant in contemporary data sets. Deconstruction also highlights the degree to which seemingly more private data streams are also implicated in these collective processes. There is a sense in which following Derrida, we might say that all data is urban data. In this, Sidewalk Lab Sin was not in proposing urban data as an alternative to a data governance environment undone by its own limitations, but in leveraging urban data to legitimize their own monopolizing claim to other data collected in Keyside, rather than withdrawing follow following Sidewalk's ultimate abandonment of the Keyside project, deconstruction suggests, and Derrida suggests, that we push the notion of urban data further, both in theory uh, and in application. And I think that this also, uh, just to make a final point here, I think this also raises interesting questions, uh, necessary questions, accompanying questions about governmentality, uh, and in particular, uh, the idea we, uh, the way we think about data sovereignty, but I'll leave that uh, <laughs> for another time or for the discussion afterwards. So let me just say thank you again. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully it's a fruitful conversation. <laughs>